Let's open our Bibles as we continue in our study of John 6. And we are looking at, in this chapter, as you are aware, the significance of the sovereignty of God is communicated by Christ in this sixth chapter as He spoke to individuals. And we are going through this by looking at a series of questions drawn from this chapter, and we are looking at the answers that are found first and foremost right here in this chapter, and then in other places in the Word of God. I would remind you, if you have some questions or comments, I would love to hear them, but I'm going to ask you to hold them until the end of the study so that we can be consistent as we move through the study. Now this evening we have come to what we are numbering at this point, the eighth question, and that is, can anyone else, that is anyone else besides or in addition to those whom God has chosen and called, can they, anyone else, come to Christ? And the answer is explicit in this chapter. Notice the response in verse 44. No one, that's an absolute statement, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65. And he, that is, Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Take a look back, as you can see it on the overhead there, at verse 44. If you're looking at it in your Bible, look closely. No one can come to me. Now he gives an exception to that, the only exception to that, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now I mentioned to you last week that this word in the Greek that's translated draws is referring to the idea of, for instance, as R.C. Sproul often refers to it as drawing water out of a well. That's an instance in uh, non-biblical literature of the use of the Greek term translated draws here. But what I want to do, I want to give you some other references in the Word of God where this same Greek word is used so you will understand that it is not that Christ is saying no one can come to the Father unless um, uh, God is wooing them. It's not a matter of wooing them. The idea is dragging or bringing them, carrying them to bringing. First of all, it is used in John chapter 12, verse 32. So look over to that text with me. John 12, 32. Here the word is ascribed to our Lord as well. John 12 and 32. He said, And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Will draw all men to myself. Now, 
I know there would be a lot of questions as to what does it mean by all men. Well, we know one thing, and that is it couldn't mean that he's drawing every single individual in the world who has ever lived. Because not all will come to Christ, not all will be brought to Christ. So he is, in the sense of all men, he's talking about, as we said earlier, from the book of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But notice here, he will draw them, he will bring them to himself. Peter is said to, in John chapter 18, to draw a sword. Whenever you draw a sword, you don't woo the sword, do you? You don't say, come on, sword, come out of the, the scabbard. I'm going to use you. No, you grab it and bring it out. It's used in John 21, verse 6 and verse 11, with reference to drawing in a net. Drawing in a net. Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, were said to have been drawn before the rulers. They were drawn before the rulers. They weren't wooed to go to the rulers. They were brought to the rulers. Paul was drawn out of the temple in Acts 21.30. And James talks about individuals being drawn into or before a civil judgment seat. That's James chapter 2, verse 6. In verse 65, so go back to John with me, or you can look at it on the overhead. Jesus again said, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Notice what Jesus is doing there. He's referring to verse 44. As you're studying the scripture, whenever it says here, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you. So where did he say what he's about to say to them previously? He said it in verse 44. And what did he say in verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But notice in verse 65, he changes something here. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So there's two different words that are used, and obviously in this context, they're used interchangeably. Because Jesus is, in essence, repeating what he had formally stated, and he's using a different word. And this particular Greek word, translated granted, appears more than 400 times in the New Testament. And basically, he's emphasizing the fact here that coming to Christ both originates in God's sovereignty and it is executed by the sovereign will of God. The word is used multiple times in this chapter, and here it's translated given. Chapter 6, look down to verse 27. Same Greek word that's translated granted. Verse 27. 
Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will, and here's the word, give to you. Give to you. So Christ has something, and He's giving it. It's again in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave. Again, they didn't have something, God gave it. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has, and here it is, given. And basically, it's used again in verse 33, verse 34, verse 37. It's used in verse 51, verse 52, and obviously in verse 65, translated there, granted. And the idea of it is, again, that it is, in the case of this word, the power rests in the one who's doing the giving. And whenever it comes here, it's, you're not going to come to Christ unless it's granted or given to you by the Father. Again, no one else can come. No one else can. Now, where we left off last week, what about all of those verses in this chapter that say or indicate anyone or all, and other verses in the Bible that say whosoever or whoever? And you are probably familiar with that. If you've ever sat down and talked to someone about the sovereignty of God, and they're the least bit versed in Scripture, and they have not believed in the sovereignty of God, one of the things that they will bring up are these verses. Well, the Bible says, whoever will come, whosoever will believe, whoever shall Call, and they're quoting multiple verses, and we're going to look at some of those here. Um, take a look again at the two verses that we just mentioned. I want to emphasize what is explicitly clear in these verses. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. Well, let's look at some of these other verses. How about this one? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Let me back up here for just a second. I mean, I'll just give you those texts, and then we'll come back to that verse here in just a moment. Look at John 6 while you're here, verse 57. Again, these are the verses that use anyone or whoever or whosoever. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will, be, uh, will live because of me. And notice this. It says, so he who eats me. 
Again, it's a very general statement. He who eats me, someone might say, well, what about that text? It says he, and the implication is whoever eats him. And whenever we come to these verses, which we, Lord willing, eventually will, we'll look at what Christ means by that statement, eating him. Uh, Verse 37, same chapter. Notice this. Here's that general word, all that the Father gives me. Now, obviously, this is defined right here in the text. All is that the Father gives me. John 6 and 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And notice this, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, as you are looking at these texts here in this context, obviously it should be clear in the light of verses 44 and 65 that the all and the anyone and the one are those who the Father has given. Otherwise, they cannot come. That's clear in this context. How about some other verses? How about um, John chapter 3? Very familiar one. And verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Notice that. Whoever believes. And that's a true statement. What we are looking at in John 6 is defining those who will believe to some extent. Not each person individually by name, but according to the category within which the whoever's will fall. Look at verse 16, repeats it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, how about Romans 9.33? Take a look there with me. Romans 9 and 33. Just as, is written, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Again, notice the phrase, he who believes. We could ask the question, who believes? How about Romans chapter 10 and verse 11? Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, referring to the same text, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, How do we deal with those verses? Well, we deal with them this way. They must be interpreted in the light of the explicit and absolute statements in this chapter, as well as other texts that speak to the nature of the natural man and God's sovereignty in salvation. It's leaving it open because from our perspective, we don't know who is the, who the elect are. 
But we know that whoever comes truly to Christ, whoever believes truly in Christ, whoever they are, whoever they may be, they are of the elect. Why and how do we know that? Because of John 6, 44 and John 6, 65, right? No one can come. Now, I mentioned to you there are other verses in Scripture that refer to this as well, in particular that address the condition of man. Take a look at John chapter 1, verse 12. Notice, but as many as received him. These are individuals who have come to Christ. These are individuals who believe in Jesus. They have received him. The text says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those further describing them who believe in his name. And now notice verse 13. Who were born, notice this, not of blood, so it's not their genetics, nor of the will of the flesh, they haven't in and of themselves decided, nor of the will of man. No one else is deciding for them. Very important. But then what does it say? But of God. So who is it that receives him from verse 12? Who is it from verse 12 that believes in his name? Those who were born of God. Those who are born of God. Everything else in the three phrases, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, is eliminated. It's of God. Only those who are of God, are born of God, believe. Only those born of God receive Christ. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus? He answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again, and being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. We know that from John 6, don't we? We have seen there where Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits how much? Nothing. Nothing. And everyone starts in the flesh, right? We're all here. In and of ourselves, it profits nothing with regard to our new life. Another text, take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was coming to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Of that group, as many as had been what? Appointed. appointed. 
appointed. Who do you suppose appointed them? Themselves? No. They were previously appointed, as the text indicates, and consequently they believed. Their belief was depended upon something else outside of themselves. How about Acts 16? A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She's listening to Paul preach the word, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God opened her heart. Could she come to Christ as Paul preached Christ in and of herself? No. It didn't matter how much she knew, what she was a part of. It was dependent on something. God opening her heart so that she could what? Respond. So that she could respond. How about here in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8? Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Verse 8 says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're going to spend a few minutes here on this verse, or these two verses. First of all, this particular translation, I believe, misses the weight of what's being communicated in this verse. I actually believe that the King James Version captures it better. And it says that the, 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 basically the mind of the natural man, the mind of the flesh, is hostility. Is hostility. It's very important. Because the word that's translated hostile here, it's not an adjective. It's not a verb. It's a noun. Why that is important is this. Because it's describing a condition. And the condition of the natural mind is hostility. It is hostility. In other words, it's not just angry at God. It is itself anger. It is itself hostility. Now, for our English understanding, we say toward God. But with reference to the mind itself or the natural person, it is hostility. Again, it's describing a condition. The carnal mind is not just hostile toward God. It is itself hostility. So important. It is itself, as the King James says, enmity against God. So important. How can that ever believe? The answer to that question is, it cannot. As a matter of fact, the text makes it clear. Notice this. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, 
That little phrase, does not subject itself, speaks of will. It will not subject itself to the law of God. The, the, the natural mind is hostility. You're not going to be able to soothe that hostility because it's not what it's doing, it's what it is, right? Do you see the significance there? It's not just the guy's mad at God. No, the guy is anger. The guy is hostility. The guy is enmity in and of himself. That's their condition. And because of that, it will not submit to God. Its will is bound up in its nature, right? And then the text goes on to further explain it. It addresses will, and then it says, so it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now we're talking about not just will here, but ability, right? Two things in view, will and ability. You need to change that will. You need to change the ability. And the way God does that, He doesn't work that old flesh over. He gives a new nature, right? He doesn't change the flesh. He doesn't change that. He just gives a new nature. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Notice the two things in view here. First of all, will again. The natural man, this is the person who is enmity against God, who is hostile, as this translation says, toward God. Now, let's put a little parenthetical note in here. This is from God's perspective. Some people, like Nicodemus, can be very religious, right? Nicodemus was a religious man in John 3, right? But Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why must he be born again? Well, one reason is because in the natural condition, he's hostile toward God. He's enmity against God. Because he is not, he's dead in his sin, he's sinful, he is not accepting God's terms, and thus he's against him by virtue of his own nature. So here again, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And then notice next, and he cannot understand them. Again, will and ability. He will not, and he lacks the ability to do so. Very important. He does not accept, describes the will, cannot understand, describes ability. How about another text that describes the natural nature of humanity and thus its need for God to grant salvation, its need for God to give that person to Christ and uh, draw that person to Him? Ephesians chapter 2. 
verse 1. And you were, and here's the condition, dead in trespasses and sins. That's the condition. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. And I love what Paul says here. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived. Paul was a religious man, wasn't he? Very religious man. As a matter of fact, he described himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Whenever he was testifying before governors, he, he put himself as the front leader of his people. But notice how he described himself once God spoke to his mind and gave him a new nature. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh. Doing what? Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, so that's the condition of humanity, dead in sin. Dead in sin does not mean inactivity. It's a reference to a person's uh, separation from God, not cessation, some have said, because we were certainly active, as Paul said, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But God... In contrast now, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God made us alive. We had no will, we had no ability for the things of God on God's terms on God's terms. But God worked in our heart, gave us a new nature, and we believe we came to Christ. A couple other texts. In the exercise of His will, from James 1.18, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What did God do? He brought us forth by the exercise of his will. As Romans 9 says, it's not according to the man who runs or the man who wills, but according to God who has mercy. So no one can come to Christ. No one can. They will not and they cannot. They don't want to. Not on God's terms. Now they may come if they think Christ is going to make them healthy. They may come if they think Christ is going to make them rich. They may come if they think that Christ is going to, and you can fill in the blank with any kind of man's ideas. But just as Jesus said in John chapter 6, you have seen me, he said, 
but you do not believe. That is, on God's terms. They saw him. They couldn't deny. There he is. Yeah, I believe Jesus is real. I believe he's there. There he is. Look at him. But they had no spiritual belief. So Jesus said to them, no one can unless it's being granted to him by the Father. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Again, God, the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God to birth a person into the kingdom of God. A comparison between statements in John 6 with Romans 8, 29 through 30 reveals a very interesting parallel. So, first of all, remember some truths we've seen in John 6. First, none but those drawn or granted by the Father come to Christ. Right? John 6, 44 and 4, or 65. No one but those drawn or granted by the Father come to him. Second, all those drawn, granted, given, come to Christ, believe in Christ. All of them do. John 6, 37. And third, all who come will be raised up. John 6, 37 and 39 and verse 40. Now look at Romans with me for a moment. Chapters, chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become or to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, that is his son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Take a look at this parallel with some of the words out of John 6. For new speaks of chosen or being given to Christ in eternity past. So I'm taking John 6, 44, 44 and 65, and Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, and just kind of paralleling the two together. Predestined, speaking of the will of the Father. And whenever you go back, and we'll eventually see that God speaks there of, or Christ speaks there of the will of God being that all those that are given to Him, Christ raises up. They are called. That calling is the effectual calling. That has to do a parallel with draw or being granted to come to Christ. Justified is a reference to belief that 
the Christian, we understand from Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we are justified by faith. So whenever a person believes in Christ, forensic justification occurs. They are declared just by God bases on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then raised. Jesus in John 6 talks about those who come to him, those who believe him, in him being raised up. In the resurrection, there is a reference there to glorification. So there's a parallel here. It's not necessarily absolutely one for one that we can take the words across, but we certainly see a parallel that those that come to Christ can only be those who were given to him in eternity past. And they were given to him by the Father, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The names of these individuals are the names of those who, according to Revelation 13, 8, have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And they were written there from before the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13, 8. What happens in time? God calls them. God's Holy Spirit gives them a new birth. They believe in Christ. And that belief, they're justified. Eventually, they'll be raised. They will have an immortal body. One final slide this evening before we close. Does the Father give, teach, bring, grant anyone to the Son who does not come to believe in or abide in the Son? Now, I pulled those words right out of the text. Give, teach, bring, grant, come, believe, or as we'll eventually see, abide in the Son. Does anyone that God does that for not come? Is there anyone, we could put it this way, is there anyone that God has chosen or granted to Christ who will not or does not come? The text says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not some of them, not most of them, not many of them, but all that the Father gives will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Wow, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? What if Christ did cast out someone who came to him? who genuinely came to Him, whom the Father had granted to come to Christ, and the person came to Christ and believed in Christ, what would happen if Christ cast that person out? What would that say about the relationship between the Father and the Son? They weren't in accord. That's not going to happen. That would be God against His own nature. It will not happen. And Jesus is emphasizing that, that 
uh, the one who comes to me, that one being the one granted to come to him by the Father, I will certainly not cast him out. All these people that, you, that believe they can fall from grace or lose their salvation, and we'll eventually see that in this text, they're in disagreement with the words of our Lord right here. They are rejecting Him. They are rejecting His Word. It's that clear. It's that explicit. It's an abomination to take and reject such a clear statement of Christ and many other statements. How about verse 39? This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. He's not going to cast them out. He's not going to lose them, right? What's he going to do? He's going to raise them up on the last day. Is the salvation of the saint secure? We could ask it that way, and will eventually. And the answer is, if Jesus' words are true, then the salvation is secure, right? Because you would have to argue with Christ. Well, let's stop there for this evening. Any comments or questions? You know, this, again, is a, a powerful chapter. It's one of those chapters, if you sit down and just read through it, think about each of the verses, think about the emphatic statements of our Lord here, it should bring great comfort to God's people, knowing that their salvation didn't rest on them knowing that their salvation is in the hands of God, knowing that the work He has started in their life, He will perfect. They will be raised up. Their salvation wasn't dependent upon them. It's dependent upon God. It's fixed to the praise of God's goodness and His glory. And nothing will alter it. Elsewhere, Christ says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He said here, he will lose no one, and no one can snatch them, as he said in John 10, out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for our salvation, that it is of you, it is through you, and it is indeed to you to the praise of your greatness, goodness, and glory. Thank you. Cause us to be responsible in our walk as we carry on in this life in the new nature, in the new man that you have made us, to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.